BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have a, uh, <clears throat> a, a special episode today. We have, a, we have a different lineup, and we have a special guest, and a very important and I think I can say a juicy book, um, certainly for a lot of us who spent uh, much of the last four years following this one investigation, even before it was the Mueller investigation. Uh, obviously, it had a it had a prehistory before that, um, a and, and still looms over looms over the country looms over um looms over the the trump presidency uh in any case we are going to talk to andrew weissman who has a book out called where law ends inside the Mueller investigation and it is that it is it is his account of the Mueller investigation and so we're going to get right into that we're also joined by my uh friend and co-conspirator i was I'm getting a conspiracy on my mind since this is uh, what we're getting to talk about. Carrie Ann Tholis, who um, uh, we have, wow, we have all sorts of projects we've worked on over the years. In any case, let, we're going to, we want to get right into it. So before we do, let me remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast. The most important election in our nation's history is right around the corner and we need to be alert, energized and fueled to get out the vote. To help keep you caffeinated for the fight of our lifetime, Grady's Cold Brew is offering 25% off site-wide from now until Election Day. All fans of the Josh Marshall Podcast and Grady's Cold Brew are eligible for the deal with no limits. Order now and get Grady's famous New Orleans-style coffee delivered straight to your door or send a batch to your local campaign headquarters. Grady's can be poured hot or cold and is available in regular and decaf ready to give it a swirl get 25 percent off at grady's with promo code tpm so andrew let me start by asking you this which is sort of like a big um a big meta question that we're gonna we're gonna get into in a bunch of subsidiary questions over the course of this over the course of this episode but I think that a lot of people in this country who were following this investigation uh, had this idea, given uh, Bob Mueller's background, professional background, uh, what we learned over the course of that time uh, about his personal background, character, all these kind of things, that this was going to get to the bottom of the whole thing. And I think we all understood that President Trump had some uh, powers at his disposal that could maybe allow him to shut the whole thing down, to just fire everybody. Um, But if that didn't happen, we were going to get to the bottom of it. And uh, no pun, you know, nothing held back. I think that... Since the 
investigation ended, and particularly in recent months, we have learned a lot that has made it seem like that was not really the case. That there was, uh, you know, prosecutor restraint is part of being a prosecutor, but that there was a lot of restraint and some and some uh, things that just were not really pushed into. Some basic facts about president's finances, business deals, taxes, without which the context of of a lot of the basic questions probably couldn't be. Um, unearthed. Uh, you get into your book about, uh, you know, the, there were, there were certain ways that the report was written. There was what Bill Barr did to the, you know, did with the report, spun the report after the fact. But on this basic point, what did we get wrong about Robert Mueller? And I say we, I mean the collective, you know, commentariat observer class. What did we miss? Or did we miss something? Um, well, I think it's important to look at that in terms of um, what we got right and what was answered. Um, and then um, we'll turn to what are open issues. So it's important within that, within that um, really excellent question, first to consider um, what was done really well. Um, so I always talk about the two Russia indictments, particularly because those were on a part of the team that I was not on. So it's not self-congratulatory. Um, but I also think they are the two things that are the most um, important in terms of the lasting legacy of what we did. And those were two indictments that proved um, with really hard, concrete evidence what Russia was up to um, in terms of hacking into the DNC, then weaponizing that information about election interference. And, that, and it wasn't, as Bill Barr said, just to, quote, sow discord, unquote. It was to actively promote Donald Trump as, in the primary and in the general election and to depress the vote um, of black voters, brown voters, and Bernie Sanders voters, and I'm not saying those are all mutually exclusive, um, uh, so they would not support Hillary Clinton. Um, and that was amazing, detailed work that was done in record speed. Um, so there was a lot that was done right. Um, one of the things when I wrote this book is I realized it was going to be easy to write a book where I talked about all of the problems that the president posed to our investigation and that Attorney General Barr posed. But I also wanted to write a harder book about, well, how did we meet those challenges and what what did we do that I thought was really good, but also what we could have done better. Um, and sometimes it's just a question of, you know, a disagreement. Um, you know, I try and lay out why Robert Mueller made the decisions he did and then where I disagreed with it to point out why I disagreed. And then the reader can decide you know, which way they would they would have gone on those issues. So um, first, the report itself that we wrote does point out limitations. And that happens all the time. You know, as journalists have that all the time. You interview people and you don't always get to the bottom of it. And you end up with, unfortunately, unanswered questions. And so our report does point out things where 
um, we just couldn't get to the bottom of it. So one example of that is this figure named Konstantin Kalimnik, who was identified recently by the bipartisan Senate report as essentially a, sp a Russian spy. Um, we don't know what he did with the internal Trump campaign data that was given to him um, by at the direction of Paul Manafort. You know, we'd love to know um, what what happened to it once he got it. Um, we know that it was intended to go to Ukraine and Russian oligarchs, but we don't know if it did and then how it was used if it if it went to them and to other people. Um, but there are other areas where we we didn't explore things that I think um, really goes to the heart of your question. So, for instance, we've all looked at the New York Times reporting from 10 days ago, which in this in this media environment seems ago, like 10 yeah. years ago. <laughs> but um, that's an area where I discuss the initial decision, which just to be clear, I agreed with um, the initial decision when we first subpoenaed uh, Deutsche Bank, we got a call from the White House saying, are you essentially crossing the red line and investigating the president's finances? Um, that subpoena was actually about Paul Manafort's finances, as to which I was doing with a great team of agents, a traditional financial investigation, which is ironic since that was for Paul Manafort, who is a lesser figure, obviously, than um, the president. Um, and the decision was made to not cross that line um, at that point. Um, and I agreed with that because you really have to balance at that point. Do you risk being fired and the plug being pulled and never revealing um, what had happened, what Russia was up to and never getting to those, um, those investigations and proof? Um, and we didn't even realize at that point just how close we had come to being fired. We didn't yet know about what Don McGahn said was happening in June of 2017, just a month after the appointment. My issue is that I thought that needed to be revisited. Um, now, to get very much in the weeds, it is important to know that um, the appointment order, in other words, the the document that Rod Rosenstein signed that set us up didn't say you can investigate any and all things and all financial transactions of the president. So like, for instance, as a hypothetical, if the president did a transaction in India that had nothing to do with Russia, um, that that was off limits, that that wasn't something that was within the scope of what we could do. People may say that's outrageous or wrong, but that wasn't a Bob Mueller issue. That is a question of the appointment order. So we had to stay within that document or we would have to go back to Rod Rosenstein and have a good reason for why we thought the appointment order needed to be expanded. So I hope that answered no, no, no. <laughs> long no, way of answering no, your I, question. No. Yeah, no, no, I, have, I, I, I have one quick follow-up on something you said about the you guys trying not to get fired You know, during this process. How did you determine or decide where that line was, what you could go up to that wouldn't, you know, make the president explode because he was pretty clearly unhappy with all of this. That, that was kind of going to be my follow up, too, but from a slightly different angle, that it sounds like in that initial decision that maybe w could have been revisited later, that it was not uh, only or maybe even primarily a 
an investigative or legal decision per se. It was a strategic decision of we need to we need to preserve this investigation because the president might just fire us. And that's a pretty but to and, and to Kate's point too, how how were you gaming out what was in the president's head? So those are excellent um excellent questions. Um it is it's worth noting something that's really atypical about investigating the president of the United States that doesn't exist in any other investigation and obviously was new to everyone except for maybe one team member who had been as a very young lawyer on Watergate. Um, And that is that um, when I investigated organized crime figures in New York or Enron executives, those are complicated cases, but the people we were investigating didn't have the ability to do two things. They couldn't pull the plug on our investigation and fire us. And two, they couldn't um, dangle pardons or actually pardon people who were um, we wanted to cooperate with us. Those were two huge powers that the president had. Um, the question of how did you game this out There is no, it's not a science. It is sort of an art. And my view was at the outset of the investigation where um, uh, we hadn't gotten a toehold, we hadn't done any investigation, and there still was the ability to do a financial investigation and look at financial motives and links. There was less reason to cross that line and risk, even though we didn't know how big a risk it was. Obviously, once Don McGahn came in and talked to us about what was going on in the White House, it was clear that was a big risk. Um, uh, And that came and went for 22 months. I sort of recount in the book just what it's like to show up at work, not knowing if you're going to, you know, be there the next day and just how much we did to try and preserve our work and to make sure it didn't go anywhere, having read about Watergate. Um, My issue was in gaming that out, there was a point where um, Jeannie and I, Jeannie led one of the teams, Team R, that we had very inventive names. She was, Team R was Russia and Team M was Manafort. Um, at some point, the mantra that we kept on saying is better to get fired, meaning at some point it was like, okay, we've, pr- we've shown this, we've proved that, we've flipped um, uh, Rick Gates, we have indicted two, um, two sets of Russian actors, um, Manafort has been convicted. Um, at that point, it was like, it's, uh, if we don't do it, um, we're sort of letting down, um, or this is just, I'll take it from my perspective. I felt like I was letting down um, the public because I felt like there was more to do. And at some point I was like, you know, if we get fired, we get fired. But that's then on the president who fired us and whatever repercussions there are, you know, politically um, in terms of doing that, so be it. That's that's his choice, but we shouldn't sort of um, self-censor um, at a certain point. Um, but there is no, um, there's no good answer to how, you, you don't have a, it's not like a science experiment where you know, here's the exact risk and here's how much more of a risk it is if you go into this area. Andrew, if if I might jump in, there's a moment in the book where you very dramatically describe watching a split screen, essentially, of, on the one hand, 
getting the verdicts in the Manafort trial that you oversaw, and on the other hand, seeing Michael Cohen, seeing the um, the prosecutor in New York announce a plea agreement with Michael Cohen, um, and and then in the aftermath of that, um, Jeannie, I think, says to you, it's time to pull the trigger, which meant it's time to pull the trigger on subpoenaing the president. And then that was, I think, perhaps the, the great kind of blow up in the tensions between the two of you on the one hand and Aaron Zebley, who was kind of Mueller's gatekeeper on the other. Could you describe the dynamics of that day, that dramatic day, and then the aftermath of your trying with Jeannie to pull the trigger? So that was definitely the high point in terms of are having the most momentum and seeing our investigation just accomplish so much. We did, we indicted these two Russian cases um, and it was very cinematic because obviously it wasn't in any way coordinated. No one knows when a, a jury's going to come back. And it just so happened that the jury came back, you know, within the same hour um, that this, the jury that in Virginia that was trying uh, Manafort was coming back this at the same time um, that Michael Cohen was pleading guilty. Um, he ended up pleading guilty um, in connection with both Russian things and, and non-Russian things. Um, so we had a piece of it and the Southern District of New York had a piece of it. Um, and also there was something, a little bit of a flip uh, because... Um, for so long, you know, we were a closed box and we would see on TV journalists speculating about what we were doing. And here, of course, we were all glued to the TV to see what was going to happen in the verdict in Virginia, because, there, you know, there's, Virginia isn't notorious because that courthouse, there's no equipment that's allowed in, no phones, nothing. So... We knew that the first way that we would hear is um, not from our team, which would be in court and couldn't just run out, um, that we would hear it from reporters. So it was interesting that we were waiting for reporters on this one. Um, and, um, you know, the, the details of it also were quite dramatic because we were getting notes from the jury about what they had found and what they hadn't, but not whether it was guilt or not guilt. So... Um, that happens and everyone is in my office and outside of my office waiting for this. It was a big test of our office, obviously, as to whether we would be able to convince a jury of Paul Manafort's guilt. Um, but, you know, that happened and then um, and there was, you know, guilty on all of the eight of the 18 counts were all guilty um, and hung, meaning no, no decision on the other 10. Um, you know, terrible result for Manafort. Um, and because he was also then awaiting another trial that was going to happen in, in a month. And then Michael Cohen was pleading and the way it had been pled by the Southern District of New York, individual one was clearly the president of the United States. And so you had this, um, you know, the conviction of a campaign manager um, that hadn't happened since I think John Mitchell um, there obviously was a lot of pressure then on Paul Manafort to cooperate because he was convicted facing a lot of time and facing yet another trial. You had Michael Cohen, 
um, giving information and pleading guilty and in a way that seemed to indicate that the crime he had pleaded to one of the conspirators was the president of the United States. Um, and internally, we just knew if you're ever going to pull the trigger and actually going to subpoena the president and stop the, the, um, the incredible effort that Bob Mueller and um, people under him were, were engaging in to accommodate the president's, to, I would say to accommodate the presidency, um, which I think is appropriate. I mean, th- there have always been those kinds of accommodations when George Bush gave evidence in the um, Scooter Libby investigation, he did that and it was accommodated so he didn't, he could just be interviewed. Um, Bill Clinton was accommodated. But this was going back and forth and back and forth and we just thought, okay, you you are either going to send the signal to the president that you're going to subpoena him or not. And um, I recount in the book, you know, Bob Mueller's view that it was both unnecessary and that it would drag the investigation on for much longer um, uh, to do that. And my disagreement was that I thought that, um, and this is one where I expressed it at the time, was that I thought it was a really bad precedent to set for the next investigation, that this would be thrown in the face of the, you know, God forbid we have another special counsel or independent counsel as to even in a case where the crimes under investigation are so serious, um, where the president's intent is so central um, to those crimes that even there, the most we ended up doing was getting some written answers to some part of the investigation. Um, I thought that was not going to sit well going forward. And obviously, if you compare it to Bill Clinton, um, you know, you could say those crimes were under investigation were of lesser import to a democracy. I'm not trying to say they're not important. I'm just saying that there was less less important to the country as a whole. And and there was a, um, he was required to give testimony under oath. So I, I wasn't, if it was up to me, I would have made the trade-off differently. And if it had led to our being fired, so be it. Um, so that's sort I'm, of where always, I came on. I'm always that. struck that with Bill Clinton, not only did he give testimony, he gave blood which is, which you're talking about, you know, uh, that is, you know, I don't know how, I'm not sure there's a precise legal calculus to compare these things to, but talk about like a, a, a deeply invasive investigative tool. Uh, that's it. Let me, let me, let me follow up on the, on the point that you just made after, uh, after Paul Manafort is convicted. And as you say, a lot of pressure uh, on him to make a deal, to cooperate, which he eventually did and then did not do. Um, so here is a here is a basic question, and I think I understand the logic, but I'm just I, I'd like you to um, sort of elaborate on it if, if you could. My basic understanding is okay. So 
these convictions are secured. It's a lot of jail time. There's another case, a lot of pressure on Manafort. Uh, there's a deal. Uh, you start the process of cooperation. And then uh, even after months of, of, you know, either not talking or lying about things that had happened, after he starts cooperating, you find out he's still lying, lying about different, you know, he's still still lying. And at that point, again, as I understand it, the investigation makes the decision, this guy can never be credible. And this guy is never going to level with us. So there's no point. We're just, we're done with trying to get the the facts from Paul Manafort. Now, my question there is, as this lines up, Paul Manafort in many theories of this total case, is the only one who, who the facts can be gotten from in just a, in just a factual sense, right? Uh, you don't have Kalimnik. He's not in the United, you know, he's not, he's not gettable. Um, so in some sense, deciding you're not going to get, get the facts from Paul Manafort means deciding you're not going to get the facts. Now, I don't, now, but again, at a certain point, you just say, this person is a liar. They are never going to be credible. Like they may tell us that, you know, they may tell us that he may tell us that uh, Trump and Putin have a secret hideout in Antarctica. It doesn't matter because he's a liar. But walk us through. What is that? How does that decision go? Yeah, it's a really good, uh, good question. Um, so after Paul Manafort is convicted in Virginia, he is facing a month later a trial Um, The proof is very, very strong in uh, Washington, D.C. And um, we also were ready for that trial so that when Manafort made a motion to have that trial put off, the judge um, basically gave him a week. So um, because we wanted to make sure he felt the full weight of having he made the decision to face two trials. Um, he could have faced just one. And so that second trial was then going to happen. Personally, I think it it was actually to our advantage that it was happening in September um, of uh, 2018. If you remember, the midterms were coming up, um, you know, six, eight weeks later. Um, Manafort had actually said to us um, through counsel that he wanted to put the trial off until after the midterms. So I'd say A for candor on <laughs> what he was seeking to do. But I always thought um, he, his calculus was um, he might be truly cooperating and truly decided that I'm going to throw in the towel and I'm going to just put my eggs in the basket of cooperation. Or he could be deciding, as I recount, and I had very strong suspicions this is what he was going to do, I need to avoid at all cost having a month-long trial where every single day there is going to be the drip, drip, drip of really hideous evidence about what he was doing in Ukraine. Um, and I recount some of that and sort of had the stories he made up about Hillary Clinton, about his um, really using subterfuge in connection with lobbying in the United States of of the senators, of the presidents of the United States, the, President Obama, of just really devious conduct. And I just thought he he would have thought, I, I'm never going to get a pardon if, if I 
if this all comes out and I and this is the news for you know the next several weeks. Um, and so, on the other hand, we really, as you said, normally once you blow trial, which is sort of the term that you use as a prosecutor, is you usually don't um, cooperate somebody at that point unless there's sort of unusual reasons to go forward because you don't want to create an incentive for. Um, people to say, well, why don't I first go to trial, see what happens, and then I'll cooperate. Like, they should do that beforehand. Um, but here, um, the calculus was, look, he was going to admit everything he did. Um, he was going to forfeit um, so much. And it also, I was insistent that he forfeit in a way that even if he got a federal pardon, the government still had civil forfeiture um, so that we would get more than a criminal conviction. Um, and we had the possibility that he would tell us the truth. Um, in other words, we really wanted to know what did he know for good or bad, whatever it is. Um, I recount the conversation we had at the time about, you know, what are we going to do if he's just playing a game and comes in and says, you know, this is a witch hunt and Donald Trump is innocent of everything. And no one's, I don't know of any crimes that anyone has ever committed except me. Um, and, you know, obviously, if he said that in a credible way that we could corroborate, great. But we were suspicious about that. And um, so we did all sorts of things. We um, uh, we interviewed him a lot. We followed up various leads. Um, we worked with his excellent counsel to explain to them why there were issues and his story kept on changing, which they recognized and they were pushing him because they were good defense counsel. And, you know, you want to make sure your client doesn't get into trouble with the government at that point. Um, well, uh, also, I assume just make the most of cooperating. Yeah, absolutely. You're trying, you're trying to protect yourself. Right? Yeah, so, right, right. absolutely. And um, we at the end, um, this is now public. We put him in the grand jury. We thought maybe if he's under oath um, and there was a written transcript of what he said that might have some effect on his being more candid. He wasn't going to be able to say, well, those are just FBI notes of what I'm saying. There's there's a written record being kept by a court reporter who's unrelated to the U.S. attorney's office. Um, uh, We thought that might help. um, And it didn't. Um, And at that point, you you know you, there's no you have no more cards and i'd say there's one other thing that i think especially for lawyers who are listening was that bob muller had a really good idea which was he said look to the extent that paul manafort is worried about and is thinking i might get a federal pardon from the president that can only affect federal charges a presidential pardon does not affect any state case we obviously can't tell a state what to do in terms of who they should investigate or whether they should bring charges, but we can coordinate with them. And the Manhattan DA's office, um, I was told by, by Director Mueller to talk to them and see if they needed and wanted our Manafort evidence, which they did, because it related to crimes that he committed in New York um, and to which for which he had Um, the jury in Virginia had not reached a result. In other words, the hung jury allowed um, Manhattan to potentially go forward. So, um, and the reason that was sort of useful for us is that way Manafort would understand 
um, if Manhattan went forward, that he couldn't put all his eggs in a presidential pardon because he still would face potential criminal exposure in Manhattan. So I make that call, and later in the day, I'm talking to um, Director Mueller's deputy to make sure he's up to speed on what's going on. And he says, wait, 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 you have to stop because Rod Rosenstein, the acting attorney general, um, had requested, his office had requested that we not coordinate with any state law enforcement so we wouldn't interfere with a potential presidential pardon. And the deputy had agreed to that. Um, And to me, that was... It still is. It was at the time, and it still is um, something I don't understand why you would... I don't understand why Rod Rosenstein would ask that, and I don't understand why we would agree to it. Um, And let me just give you one reason. There wasn't even a pardon on the table. This was about not doing something that would help our investigation, encourage Manafort to be truthful, and could only have a potential downside if there were a pardon, but that isn't even, that isn't happened to date. Um, and so we ended up not using a tool that, again, it may not have worked, but you know, our job is to run down leads and use the tools that are available to us. So um, that's, I guess, a long way of answering sort of look what the arc was. But there was no question once Manafort was just continually lying to us that we had to do something. We were, we were not going to write him a, what's called a cooperation letter that tells the judge, oh, look at all the great ways he cooperated. I mean, you can't do that. You, your obligation to the court is to be honest. So at that point... Um, you know, we had a hearing and set out our evidence and the court found that he had lied in a whole series of ways to us. Before, um, Carrie, let me just get one. I'm going to hand this off to, to Carrie, but I have one more thing I wanted to, um, wanted to ask. Uh, presumably at some, at some level, um, uh, Manafort was hoping, maybe still hoping, for a pardon, right? Uh, President Trump has at least a few months left of that of that uh, you know plenary power to kind of do anything he wants on that front, almost anything he wants. But it certainly seemed from the outside, and still seems to me, that uh, there were other things motivating Paul Manafort beyond the possibility of a pardon. Uh, as, as I think you suggest, it's not, it's, it's never seemed that these guys were tight, that, that Paul Manafort had any particular devotion to Donald Trump, or certainly that Donald Trump had any particular devotion to Paul Manafort. Um, how he conducted himself does not make, does not seem to make sense rationally, given his age, given his, given his sentence, all that kind of stuff. Do you have any, this is goes beyond legal analysis, but what did your gut tell you about what was happening here? He could have done very well by himself, presu- assuming he had other things he could have shared. So what's your sense of what happened there? Um, well, there's no question that Paul Manafort has been treated differently than Roger Stone. Um, so Roger Stone was given clemency so that he, he never had to go to jail after his conviction. Um, 
with Paul Manafort, I'm not sure he will, or I don't know what will happen in terms of whether he will get a, a pardon. Obviously, the fact that he has been re- released from prison and is in home confinement takes some of the pressure off of that decision. Um, that's not to say that he is under restrictions, um, but it's just not the same thing being in prison versus, you know, staying at home. Um, in fact, you know, the attorney general has likened staying at home to um, slavery. Um so, um, uh, what I don't know the answer to why that is. I think um, why there is that difference. You do have the fact that there was no love lost between Paul Manafort and the president. By all accounts, and this is in our report, that was not a close relationship. Unlike the Roger Stone, it was a longtime friend of um, the president and. It, that seems like a very interesting relationship of uh, between the two of them. Um, and also Paul Manafort's crimes of conviction were substantially, much, much more substantial um, and went back um, longer. And I think there may have been a greater political cost if there was a pardon um, given what... Um, uh, what Paul Manafort was convicted of. Um, third, it is possible Paul Manafort didn't have as, didn't have um, information that was going to be as damaging or as credible um, as the president was worried about with respect to Roger Stone. I mean, the speculation with Roger Stone, which no one knows, is you know what? Why did Roger Stone lie to Congress? I mean, it was clear he was covering up, I mean, as the court found, he was doing his crimes for the president. Um, you know, I've written about this, which is Roger Stone still to this day can be put in the grand jury and asked that question, which is, why did you lie um, to Congress? And, you know, why not just tell, if there was nothing bad, why not just tell the truth um, as to what happened in terms of your coordination with WikiLeaks and your conversations with people on the campaign up to including Donald Trump? Um you know, I my speculation is that um, Paul Manafort, um, you know, was never going to cooperate as we, you know, it was clear that he wasn't intending to do that. And he just needed to avoid um, having a trial that would have made it harder for him to get a pardon because um, it would have been more damaging to the president. And he wanted to keep that possibility um, alive. Um, and the fact that he was found by a court to have lied so many times, I think, neutralizes him from the president's point of view to the extent that the president is worried. And then again, this is speculation as to something that Paul Manafort might know unless he has it in a way you know, on, in writing or on tape. It's hard to say that you're going to just believe Paul Manafort um, at this point. And just remember, one of the things that Paul Manafort lied to us about was basically skimming money from a pro-Trump PAC. Um, So, you know, it was clear the reason I recount sort of how we uncovered this. And it was pretty clear that this was something that was not going to endear him to the president, um, that he was taking money that should have been used to help get the president elected. Did you did you ever consider both with Manafort and with Gates that they might be in fear of 
their own safety or the safety of their families from folks affiliated with Deripaska and Putin? Um, we did consider the problem of danger. I mean, that's where, you know, a lot of us have organized crime cases in our background um, and, um, and you know, worry about that in certainly in organized crime cases, there's a way to deal with that. And it's a big deterrent to cooperation and you have a witness protection program. Um, and, um, but it's, it's, uh, what I would say is it's speculative. Um, in other words, what you try and do in a normal case is you build a very strong criminal case and then you approach somebody and, um, you know, in organized crime cases, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but here, to the extent that was at play, you also had the problem of a pardon. So that I think that I don't know to what extent that um, would hurt us in getting American cooperators. I think I was more concerned about that in terms of um, getting people who lived overseas to cooperate. Um, can you also um, reprise for us your assessment of the Attorney General, uh, William Barr, in going into his tenure as this time around as Attorney General? And uh, you, you write about it very eloquently in the book. But the one thing that I'd like for you to add to that is your assessment of Rod Rosenstein and his role in the transition from Sessions to um, to Barr. Um, those are great questions, and I think of them in different buckets. Um, so I opened my book on the moment on March 24th, 2019, where we see what the world sees, which is this purported four-page summary letter. It's not a summary. Um, it's it, I describe, but at the end of the book, I sort of go back to it because everyone understands then all the facts, and you you see all the ways that that the attorney general misled the American public. Um, and the reason that date of when I learned about the four page letter is so important in turn stands out, I think for all of us. And certainly for me is that was the moment where somebody who you thought was going to be an institutionalist supporting the independence of the department of justice, we knew internally to the special counsel's office what we were now dealing with, which was somebody who was a political actor who was distorting what we had found. But we also knew the, the public didn't know that yet because they didn't have the report. Um, now, I think it's kind of a commonplace. I mean, we've all lived through the attorney general doing things that, in my view, have completely denigrated the rule of law and and. You know, I've worked at the Department of Justice for over 20 years, and it's really hard to watch. Um, and this is not political. I mean, I've worked for Democrats and Republicans at the um, Department of Justice, and I've never seen anything like this. Um, so it has nothing to do with his policies. It's the fact that the rule of law is something that he's undermining. With Rod Rosenstein, I think um, I can give him a pass on the so-called Rosenstein memo that was used by the president to as an as the rationale for 
um, firing Jim Comey. And then quickly the president had to backtrack and say, well, I was going to fire him anyway. And that's one where I can um, say, gee, he had just gotten into that office. Um, he got played, um, you know, there but for the grace of God. I, I know other people have different views, but I can sort of give him the benefit of the doubt on that. And certainly that led to his appointing Robert Mueller, and you don't get a better choice than Robert Mueller. I mean, he's such a straight shooter. If you remember when he was appointed, you know, Democrats and Republicans were saying he's a wonderful choice. Um, that was before, you know, the the sort of what I call the, the you know, the, the standard presidential playbook of denigrating the special counsel. We've seen that before. Trump is not the first person to have done that. Um, where I find Rod Rosenstein harder to give credit to is one, the story I recounted about his office asking us not to coordinate with any state law enforcement. I don't think that was a, an appropriate thing to ask. Um, uh, and the other is, I don't understand how Rod Rosenstein signed off on that summary letter and stood up at the press conference with the attorney general. I, I mean, it was so misleading and he had appointed us and he knew everything that we were investigating. Our indictments had to be signed off by the Department of Justice when we were doing national security matters or tax matters or you know, all of that had to be approved. I don't understand how he was able to stand there um, it seemed really hypocritical to me. Um, and there was no explanation for, for instance, why they concluded there was no obstruction of justice. I mean, it's really hard to read volume two and think that just, just taking the Don McGahn um, evidence about being at where he said I was asked by the president to fire Mueller. I was then asked to deny it to the press. And I was asked to record that in a, memo for the quote file um, that you know which is and while our investigation was going on um, as well as just throwing in another thing which is what's the what's the innocent reason to dangle a pardon I understand there could be an innocent reason to give a pardon but the only reason you dangle a pardon is because you're trying to thwart cooperation so if you're trying to get at somebody's intent that is a very useful thing to look at. So I have a lot of trouble with um, Rosenstein's actions towards the end of um, the investigation. Could I jump in with one question? Um, and maybe in the 10 minutes or so we have left, Andrew, I wanted to ask about some news that broke last night from CNN, which centers around this, I think, about three-year-long grand jury subpoena fight to a you know, an unknown foreign entity here at TPM. Our colleague Tierney Sneed had written a lot about it, but the CNN story last night revealed that it was a it was a state-owned Egyptian bank that was, I guess, subpoenaed, and and it had to do with a last-minute influx of cash in Trump's campaign in the 2016 election, something like $10 million or something like that. Is there anything you can tell us about this story? Any light you can shed on the um, on this saga? So. Unfortunately, that's one where I can't, and I have two reasons I can't. One, um, my book had to go through pre-publication review, so meaning I couldn't just leave the government and be like, hi, I want to just talk to you about everything that's in my book. I had to, 
um, I wanted to write down everything that happened, but then it had to be vetted by the Department of Justice. Everyone knows sort of has followed, I think, what happened with John Bolton. Well, I didn't take that route. I gave it to them. It took months and it got cleared. So that material that um, to and Andrew, just for our listeners, that is, so they know, that is a standard process. In previous administrations, it can be abused, but the process itself is a is a totally, you kind of sign in advance, you're going to, all that kind of stuff. Uh, absolutely. I had agreed to do it, um, and there could be real consequences to me if I didn't, and, but I'd also agreed to do it, so I was going to do it. Um, you know, that was, that was part of the deal. And I, by the way, I need to say, um, other than that it took longer than it should have, um, I was treated very fairly um, in the pre-publication review process. Um, I, I really don't have any complaints other than, you know, I wish it were faster. But I'm, I'm pretty sure I fall into a lot of people wish it was faster. Um, so um, that's not nothing that that's nothing I have pre-publication review to talk about. And the other is, and again, just reading the story, um, and I can't confirm whether it's true or not true, but if it were true, it seems to me that it discusses grand jury material. And, you know, I I have no grand jury material in my book it, that, and, you know, to the extent that there's anything that I refer to as being in the grand jury, it's because that, or, that then became public um, pursuant to a court order. So, for both of those reasons, I'm really sorry, but I don't have anything I can tell you. <laughs> That's understandable. Um, I had to give it a oh, shot. Yeah, of course. Can 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 I can I ask a quick question about um, the Trump Tower meeting and the discussion on Air Force One about Don Jr.'s response to the New York Times inquiry? Did you, in your investigation, ever? try to find out whether Trump and Putin discussed that um, meeting and what the Trump family's response should be to the news of that meeting when they had their bill at, which, according to Putin, I think, was about adoptions. So I think the answer to that is sort of, Yes, to the extent that we could. Um, so, you know, um, we interviewed every everybody who would sit down for an interview um, with us um, who was at that meeting um, was asked about it. Um, and um, including not just what happened at the meeting, but also the circumstances of a year later, how it would be spun to the press. Um, you know, and, and so the answer is we've tried to, um, and um, I don't think there's, there's certainly no evidence in our report that um, the spinning of it a year later, that that emanated from um, any place other than the administration. I mean, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying yeah. there's no evidence well, is, of that. I, I'm I'm not as not as deep into this as I was for like two or three years. But I, if I'm remembering, that was the that was the trip where there's the official bilat, and then there's kind of this walk aside at the dinner where they get about a half hour 
talking with just Putin's translator um, about we don't know what. Yeah. So, so there's so um, there are a lot of communications with between the president and um, of the United States and president um, of Russia that no one knows about. Right. I mean, so we don't know about and um, uh, and the press doesn't know about one of the reasons I thought it would be useful to have an interview is to ask those questions. Um, again, we may not have gotten the truth, but it's also this is the president of the United States given the benefit of, you know, telling us um, from his own mouth what happened. Um, but just for for your listeners, um, the the Trump Tower meeting is the meeting where um, a Russian oligarch named Agalarov, um, who was a business associate of Donald Trump, he financed the 2013 Miss Universe pageant and also makes an appearance in the New York Times reporting um, from about 10 days ago um, about the finances of the Miss Universe pageant, um, is also the Russian oligarch who sends um, the Russians to the Trump Tower meeting saying that as part of the Russian government's assistance to the Trump campaign, they have dirt on Hillary Clinton that they would like to share where Don Jr. says, you know, famously, I love it. All of that is in emails. Um, and then when this comes out a year later in 2017, there is um, an effort um, to have the press spun about what happened, um, where there's a discussion of saying this is primarily about adoptions, which is, of course, misleading because the Magnitsky Act, which was the sanctions by the United States on Russia, was um, uh, was uh, retaliated against by Putin by saying, if you have the Magnitsky Act, we're not going to allow adoptions of Russian children by Americans. So to say it's primarily about adoptions hides the fact that it's really about the Magnitsky Act, um, which Russia did not want to have in place. And and curiously, um, Putin, when asked about what he and Donald Trump spoke about in that bilat that Josh referred to, that only Putin's translator was present for, he said we talked about adoptions, I believe. Yeah, which is to me, it's it's not even code, um, you know, because it's the, adoptions is a discussion about the sanctions. Right. Let, Andrew, let me ask you this. One of the things that has and this is something that I have been thinking about well before this investigation, going back to a number of previous high profile investigations of either the president or people around the president, is we have this basic tension between, on the one hand, uh, uh, investigating, finding and uh, uh, punishing people for violating statute laws. And that is obviously what the Department of Justice is in the business of doing. That's what its skill set is, all of that. Um, in many ways, in my mind, the greater public interest is in finding out what happened. Um, and we have sort of been uh, crosswise about this ever since that uh, appellate litigation with Oliver North and Congress now kind of they hear there's a, you know, special counsel investigation. They won't touch it because they're afraid they're going to get crosswise with with some aspect of the investigation. And it it has occurred to me, certainly in this case, the fact that that Paul Manafort, 
presumably COVID's over at one point, he goes back to prison. The fact that Paul Manafort's going to spend a lot of time in prison or without his liberty, that doesn't really affect me. Doesn't I don't think it really affects our democracy in a big way. Not certain he should he should be accountable for his actions, but that is not a a, a question of big public concern. What happened? is a matter of grave public concern. And I think, as I think we have seen, often the logistics and equities of criminal investigations go against finding out what happened. They are, they are not just, not only is it not the primary aim, it can actually get in the way of it. What was, having been through this process, how did that, um, how did those two competing equities play out in internal uh, uh, discussions. I guess they did to the extent that the office didn't have to write a big report, could have just said, yeah, we indict, did these indictments, that, and that's it. But tell us, walk us through that. How did so those I equities think that play is out? A, I think that is a really great question, but I think of it differently because um, I think that um, when you say that, you know, whether Paul Manafort is in jail, um, for a certain period of time or not, that's not of a big import. But that is a tool that the government uses to obtain evidence. In other words, if people thought they could come in and lie to us with impunity and there was no ability to indict them for perjury or making a false statement, you would see even more of it. Um, now, there's one of the tools that you have um, and it was used in organized crime cases, used in an Enron. It would be used, it was used in this case is those tools to that where the criminal law is actually a tool to get at the truth. Um, and sometimes you don't need it, but oftentimes you really do, particularly, I think, in a public corruption type case. Um, so I don't view them as necessarily working against each other where I do think. Um, there, I, I understand your point and where I do think there needs to be a change and I, is that I think the special counsel rules as currently written and responding to the Ken Starr investigation where there was this very public salacious report said, no, the special counsel's audience is only going to be the attorney general. It is going to be private that you have no ability as um, the special counsel to speak publicly without the attorney general's permission. And your audience is essentially an audience of one. Um, I think that is a disservice. Understanding that it will bring us closer back to the Ken Starr world. Um, but I think, um, I think it's really important for the special counsel rules to understand the public education function of a special counsel. I think most people thought that we were going to write a report more akin to, let's say, the 9-11 Commission and speak to the public and make findings um, and have a greater discussion. And obviously, people at the far right or far left may have blown it off and said, I'm not listening to any of that. But there has to be that effort. And I so I, I don't know that we've got the balance right. And I do think that one of the things there's been a dearth of discussion about since um, the special counsel report was issued is structurally, is this where we want to be? Because it is difficult in, to be investigating the presidency, but we need to have a 
mechanism to do it. And this is a good data point to use in figuring out whether we are really accomplishing the purposes that you're noting. Carrie, you had a you had a final question you wanted to end on. Um, yeah, w- would you tell us what you believe your greatest, you're most proud of about your service on the Mueller team, and what your greatest personal regret is in your service on that team? Um, so, I think the greatest accomplishment is not is not my own is i i really do think it is the full documentation to the extent that we could of what russia did in 2016 and documenting that in black and white um as to because that is so fundamental to our democracy um and it you know i think it was it was I thought very reassuring to see a bipartisan Senate report um, just a couple of months ago um, say, yes, that is what happened and provide a few more details as well. So I think that was the thing that I'm most proud of is the work that that team did in uncovering it and getting that into the public discourse, um, which is no, that really is no mean feat. And when you're thinking about Robert Mueller, that is under his leadership and guidance and brilliance in getting that done. And the biggest regret is, um, I think, I think it's twofold. I I think that I feel like I should have been more vociferous about needing to do, as the investigation proceeded, a fuller financial investigation, and. Um, and I think, I mean, this is one where I can't say it's my personal um, regret just because I expressed my views at the time, but I feel like we really needed to subpoena the president uh, because of the the precedent it set by not doing it. So those were two things that um, when I look back and I think about what more we could have done, those are the two things that really stand out to me. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. Uh, tell us, uh, the, the book is Where Law Ends. It is, it is your look at the, how long, how long, remind me how long the investigation took. 22, like, 22 you know, months. 22 months. Uh, I'm trying to think if it sounds, if, if, it, if I remember it feeling longer or, feel, or feeling shorter. I'm sure it feel, felt longer uh, uh, doing it. Uh, thank yes. you so much for making this time. And uh, let me remind everybody that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off uh, from now until Election Day, Grady'sColdBrew.com. And as I said, uh, Andrew's book is Where Law Ends. And it is uh, available at all, basically available at Amazon. I guess that's where <laughs> books nowadays, they're available at Amazon, where, where the only place is still around selling books, but obviously all, all, all bookstores, to the extent that you can still find them operating. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great discussion. Absolutely. All right. Thanks a bunch. Talk soon. Thank you. Thanks.